Well, good morning. And we're excited, I trust, to be here and worship our God together, especially as we turn our attention to His Word and we give our Savior a chance and opportunity to speak to us. Let's begin with prayer in the hopes that He will do that. Father in heaven, we do appeal to you because you are filled with grace and mercy and love for your people. We are gathered as your redeemed ones this morning to hear from you, not so much from me, and I trust that then you will give me clarity to speak of your word in a way that's appropriate and the way that honors you. And I ask that your spirit will give us attentive ears so that as we read, we study, we look at these written words, we recognize our Savior is now speaking to us. The shepherd is guiding his flock. I pray, Father, for clarity in our understanding. I pray for courage to apply these truths to our life and accomplish the work through us, Father, that only you can do in sanctifying your church. We also pray, Father, for those that may not be yours this morning, but who you would be willing to call into your flock, your fold. Speak to the heart as only you can do. We thank you for these moments that we have together, not only in fellowship around your word, but in fellowship around the communion table, which gives memorial to your son. We want to honor him this morning. So allow that this would be a sacred time for your church and for your heart as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I just want to again remind you for... Those of you that are big note takers, I know that what's in your bulletin is very small, and if you want to, before you come to church, you can go to the church website and download what the folks at home are using. It just gives you a little bit bigger note sheet to work with if you would like to do that. You don't have to use either one of the note sheets, but if you find it helpful, they're there and available to you. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to John chapter 10 once again. And I want to acknowledge that this passage is very doctrinal and it is very reassuring, both of which I'm extremely grateful for. And I note that the doctrines that we're going to be touching on are not doctrines that every believer is necessarily going to agree on, but I want you to know that I will preach these doctrines without shame because the doctrines of grace, if they do one thing for me, It tells me, Monty, stop looking so much at yourself and see more of the Savior. And I trust that this will do that for you as well. John chapter 10, verse 22. Read down and follow along with me down through verse 33. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them by saying, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Uh, Tim mentioned in his prayer this morning with great emphasis the upcoming state of our nation with the elections and everything that's going to take place. And I have to say it's very unusual to hear the modern news media make an assessment of this nature. But in the past several weeks, I recently read an article on a local Seattle news station which said that the governor is a master of the non-answer. Now, that's unusual because our governor is not known for his conservative values and the liberal news sources are generally not prone to honestly confront the flaws or defects of liberal politicians. But I think what is also unusual is to see a politician that isn't guilty of proclaiming non-answers. Very often we can walk away from political speeches or campaigns and wonder, what do they really mean? What are they really going to do? What is it that they really believe in? Because often politicians have an agenda and they don't want to fully expose that because they want to gather as many votes as possible so they can be very guilty of the non-answer. But to some degree, we may all struggle with this area because we can struggle to give or to get straight answers from people at times, even being guilty of this ourselves, because we all have our own personal agendas. We have our private concealments, our private opinions. What our text shows us this morning is that God is not at all like us. And in fact, the very thing that the Jews charged Jesus with here in these first couple of verses, that of giving non-answers, is the very thing that God has not been doing in speaking to these Jews. Imagine the scene that is, is painted here by the Apostle John in verses 22 to verse 24. The religious leaders there in Jerusalem, they've circled around Jesus, and I picture almost like a pack of wild dogs ready to devour a victim. And in reality, they had the Son of God cornered, and they had the nerve to demand of him that he speak plainly about who he had been claiming to be. We know from our study of the Gospels that Jesus often spoke in parables and would oftentimes conceal his true identity from certain people because of the divine timetable of his sacrificial death. But here in John's Gospel, miracles, proclamations from Christ, the debates that he had with the religious rulers gave sufficient evidence of his divine and heavenly origin where only, only, Sin could hold back a response of faith. Imagine demanding a clear statement from God. God is not the one with a clarity problem. It is sin that clouds man's vision. And the dialogue between these Jews and Jesus Christ gave John the kind of gospel material for his account of the Lord's life to bring great comfort and security to every believer. And the words that I just read at the beginning 
Are they not the words of comfort that every true believer rejoices in this morning? It is these words that we're going to focus on this morning, beginning with, this morning, the plainly stated gospel truth in verses 22 to verse 33. Now, actually, it's 22 to verse 30 because that ends kind of the Lord's um, doctrinal presentation. But we're going to be studying down through verse 33. Now, by way of introduction, the first couple of verses John uses to give us a setting for the discussion with these religious leaders, these Jews. And he puts us here during the feast of the the dedication. Now, scholars are going to point out that here in John 10, this brings these two events, the first half of John 10, second half of John 10, bring to a close Christ's public ministry. You'll notice the beginning in chapter 11, Jesus goes into what is referred to as his private ministry, and we are just a few months away from Calvary at this point. The Feast of Dedication was a celebration of the Jews that really began during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament era and that 400 years that existed before the New Testament era began. The Feast of Tabernacles is where we left off in the first half of John chapter 10. Now we're moving to the Feast of Dedication in the second half of John chapter 10, and that means that between verse 21 and verse 22, there is about two months' time span. Because the Feast of Tabernacles, that took place in fall, right around our month of October. The Feast of Dedication that John names here in verse 22 happened in the winter around our month of December. So there's about two months span between verse 21 and verse 22. And I want to make note of this because John will pull together these two doctrinal understandings in the first half of John 10 with the doctrinal understanding of the gospel in the second half. There is a gap here, but John is going to pull those together and I trust that we'll see that. The Feast of Dedication commemorated the liberation of Jerusalem and the temple from the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes who had captured Jerusalem and he had terribly defiled the temple and temple worship. He wanted to do away with Judaism. And it's under his brutal oppression that the Jews were stirred up to revolt against the Syrian domination. And what followed was three years of guerrilla warfare under a man that we're familiar with, Judas Maccabeus, who became a hero to the Jews. The Jews recaptured Jerusalem and they rededicated the temple to the worship of God, purging out the pagan defilements of the Syrian government. And in honor of this victory, they reestablished temple worship, hence the Feast of Dedication, the, the dedication of the temple. And today, they call this Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights, which, of course, takes place during the month of December. And this was an eight-day celebration. It's not one of the feasts that was ordained by God in the Old Testament, nor was it prominently as prominently celebrated as those other feasts but it was still a significant event in the Jews' history. And during this feast, Jesus had entered the temple in what John refers to as the portico or the porch of Solomon. And this is a large covered area on the eastern part of the temple grounds overlooking the Kidron Valley. It's covered, it is held, this cover is held up with these large pillars. And this would have been the likely place during the winter 
and the rainy season where many of the Jews would have gathered together to have discourses because it was covered. And it's here that Jesus was confronted by the Jews and where he answered their disbelief with clear gospel doctrines. Many of us are going to recognize these doctrines as the doctrines of grace. Now, there are three parts to our study. The first and the third part, you will notice, are negative. The second part is very, very positive, and it brings us a great deal of assurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We begin in verse 24 then, down through verse 26, what I refer to as a challenged identity. There's the negative view. These Jews challenged Christ's identity. And you can see the frustration of these religious rulers clearly evident in how they approach Jesus Christ. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Out with it. Plainly tell us. We want to hear the words fall out of your lips. Are you the Christ? Are you claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah of God? And you can picture them almost circling around Christ, wanting to box him in so that he cannot slip away as he had done before. Reference chapter 8 and verse 59. Jesus had done that before. They want answers. And as their question reveals, they didn't want to wait any longer for Jesus to openly confess himself to be the promised Messiah. Now, this is not because they thought Jesus might be the Messiah, and if he would openly profess it, surely they would believe. Rather, they were looking for justification to kill Christ. They wanted to hear Jesus say those words, I am the promised Messiah declared in Old Testament scriptures. And what this indicates, what the question indicates by these Jewish rulers is that Jesus had not openly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah as foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And they were using this as a justification to reject him. James Boyce made this comment. They were saying that their failure to believe was his fault, that Jesus was guilty of the non-answer. Now, Jesus had most certainly proclaimed his Messiahship with his disciples while he was still in Galilee. You can go back to Matthew chapter 16. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples, or asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Then he turned to the disciples themselves, but who do you say that I am? And remember, it was Peter that professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter. God showed you this. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, which affirmed that he was indeed the Messiah. We see that Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Messiah to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And while Jesus made those revelations of his Messiahship to select individuals as far as an open proclamation, especially to the Jewish rulers, we don't find that taking place in the Gospels. And we're told one reason for this is that Jesus' time had not yet come. Such a messianic proclamation too early on in his his ministry, would have angered the Jews to the point that they would have wanted to kill Christ before the appointed time and not in the appointed way. And we see confirmation of that in John chapter 7. But another likely reason that Jesus did not openly proclaim his Messiahship is that the Jews had the wrong understanding of the role of Messiah in Israel. 
They were looking for a conquering general, a ruling king that would liberate Israel from oppression. And Jesus, to openly proclaim himself as Messiah, would have rallied the people to force him into that kingly role that would deliver Israel from Rome and would be the the man that would lead them into their national freedom and liberty once again. Had Jesus openly declared himself at God's promised Messiah, he would have had to face the problem of men pushing him into that messianic kingly role rather than being the Messiah that would be the suffering servant. If you go back to John chapter 6 and verse 15, that's exactly what happened with the mob who had been fed by the miracle of Christ with one boy's small lunch. Over 5,000 people were fed from that lunch. The people recognized this is messianic material. He must be the Messiah. And they had the intention of pushing him in by force to make him king. So Jesus withdrew. The Jews had a wrong understanding of God's Messiah. But that being said, this does not mean that Jesus did not openly identify himself in ways that the Jews should have understood his identity. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, chapter 10 of John, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus is saying, my works, all of my works, they gave testimony to who I am, to my identity. And when Jesus mentions in verse 25 the works that he did in his Father's name, he's describing not only his proclamation of the gospel, not only the message that he proclaimed, but he's talking about the healing of people, the miracles, the signs. They're talk- he's talking about his ability to walk before men in absolute perfect righteousness, to see the life of Christ being lived out before the eyes of men is to see the very nature of God. Here was a man that walked before us who had no sin. These all are the works of God, done in the name of the Father. We have seen Jesus throughout John's narrative Describe himself as one sent by God, in union with God. Before Abraham was born, he said, I am. He declared his deity. He had the authority to forgive sins. He declared himself to be the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He had declared he would give eternal life to any that would come to him by faith. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ had declared his identity very openly and very clearly. In all of these discussions, Jesus had been revealing his identity as the Son of God. And on top of that, the works, the miracles that exhibited the power that only God has. The problem with this proclamation was not that God was not clear about declaring himself to the world. The problem was with man's inability to believe in him. As Jesus said in verse 26, you do not believe because, why? You are not my sheep. In this statement is the reality that if God does not cause spiritual rebirth, 
Men and women will remain dead in their trespasses and sin. And in that state of spiritual death, man cannot believe so as to be saved. They are bound in chains to their own sinful rejection of God and his son. Even these highly religious men who held in their hands the very laws that God had given to his people, they could not believe because they were not his sheep. They were not his sheep called out by God and given to his son as described in verses 1 to 18. Further, if you go back to John chapter 8 and you look at verse 21 and verse 24, Jesus told the Jews that if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Yet it is their sins that held them in disbelief. What that describes is bondage. Men are held in bondage to their own sin. It's what we refer to often as human depravity. They could not get outside of choosing God, believing in Christ, because they're held captive to their own sins. And only the grace of God, only the grace of God can deliver any of us from that kind of bondage. Every religion of man teaches men and women to attain to some kind of spiritual eternal bliss, some kind of relationship with God by human effort, by merit, It is only, only the Christian faith that calls sinners to cast themselves fully on the gracious work of God in providing eternal life, and this life is only found in His Son. These Jewish men held to their own religious views. They had held to their own self-righteousness, satisfied in their own works at keeping the law, and they were very content to disbelieve in Jesus as the Son of God. In their minds, they had reasoned Jesus had not sufficiently identified himself. Again, this is James Boyce. You will see this quote on the back of your note sheet. He makes this, this, this statement. Unbelief may seem logical to our way of thinking, but it is not logical to God's way of thinking, and it is with his thinking that you and I have to do. Whether in this life or the next, it's God's thinking that we're going to have to deal with. According to him, we have been told everything we need to know and are therefore without excuse if we fail to believe on Christ as our Savior. The problem that Jesus exposes in verse 26 is that these Jews did not believe in God's Son because they had not been called by God to his son. They were not the sheep of his pasture, as described in verses 1 to 18. And in this context, faith is not a human achievement. This is one of the core doctrines of the gospel. Faith is not a human achievement. It is a work of the Spirit of God who must bring dead souls to life, granting them the gift of faith, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, and drawing them, drawing unsaved men and women to faith in God's Son. True faith must be initiated by God Himself. Religion was not going to save these Jewish leaders, nor is it going to save any man. 
The very best of man's deeds, even deeds done in the name of God, cannot earn us a position in God's sheepfold. It can't make us one of his sheep. Only by God's gracious call can sinners be drawn to a son, and it is only through a son that any one of us can enter into God's flock. God's true Messiah alone provides the salvation that all men need. But the question is going to naturally come. If Jesus is referring to his sheep, you can't believe because you're not one of mine. The question is going to come from that. How can I become one of his sheep? Or how do I know that I am one of his sheep? How can I be certain of eternal life? How do I become one of these sheep that Jesus is talking about in this discourse. This brings us to our second and our very positive point, where Jesus describes a certain eternity, a certain eternity. And I want you to underline that word certain, because that is this strong emphasis in verses 27, 28, and 29, is it not? This gives us absolute certainty of eternity. And the glory that is to come. I don't doubt that for most every genuine follower of Christ, these words in verse 27, 28, and 9 are some of the greatest promises that we hold on to made by God in connection with his gospel. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me greater than all, and nobody is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My sheep. You want to know if you're one of his? Jesus says it here. My sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow. Think about the call of the gospel. Repent and believe. To repent is to turn from following my own path of sin and to turn and follow the Savior. My sheep hear my voice. They follow. They're repentant sheep. And number two, they're believing sheep. They hear the voice of the Savior. The Savior knows them. We know our Savior. We know his voice. We believe him. This is a description of repentance and faith, and they are the work of God's grace. In this brief paragraph, Jesus stacks one promise upon another in succession, declaring the gracious work of God in redemption. Observe the number of ands in those three verses. And, and, and. He's stacking one declaration, one doctrine, one promise upon another so that we can be certain of where we stand with God through Christ. From this passage, Jesus affirms the doctrines of God's grace that I want to present this morning, beginning with the gracious initiative, the gracious initiative of God. And what I mean by that is out of God's grace, he initiates salvation. He's the initiator. When Jesus says, my sheep, in verse 27, he is identifying the truths of his previous discourse in the first half of John 10. Again, I emphasize that two-month separation between verse 21 and verse 22. Do you see what John is going to do here? He's going to take this discourse where the Jews confronted him in verses 27, 28, and 29, and he's going to address what Jesus had already taught two months before. 
John's going to bridge the gap with these two, two events that were separated to, by two months. And he's going to give us a doctrinal understanding and what it means to be a sheep that belongs to Christ. He's identifying the truths of his previous discourse. Jesus told the Jewish rulers that they were not of his sheep. And their disbelief gave clear evidence of that fact. Because his sheep hear his voice. They are known by Christ. And they know their Savior and they follow him. This is what we saw in verses 1 to 18. Out of the sheepfold of Israel, remember, Jesus Christ drew his chosen sheep and he did so as the one true authorized shepherd of God. He knew them by name. They were given to him, the Son, by God the Father. He leads them out and they become his own flock, his own redeemed people. His sheep hear his voice. They follow him by faith. None can enter his flock. None can enter into salvation and the blessing of God apart through the door who is Christ. And as the good shepherd, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep that God has given to me. And this includes not only the sheep drawn out of Israel, but drawn from the Gentile sheepfolds as well. We saw that in verse 16. The description of sheep that Jesus calls his own, or who he calls my sheep, is a flock that has been formed by God's grace and by his initiative. God gave these ones to his son. His son drew them out of Israel, drew them out of the Gentile nations. He laid down his life for them. And he said, these are mine. They know my voice. I know them by name. They believe and they follow. All of humanity from Adam to the present fall under the just condemnation of God on account of our sins. All mankind deserves eternal judgment. All are subject to the wrath of God. It is entirely a work of His grace. It is by His intervention that He would call some out to be the sheep of His pasture, to be saved by the Good Shepherd who laid down life for His own sheep. We call this elect. Some people are going to be concerned, how do I know if I'm the elect? You don't need to worry about that. That's something God knows how to deal with. He knows how to choose his flock. All you need to do this morning is ask yourself, do I hear my shepherd's voice? Do I follow? Have you come to him by repentance and faith? Because if you've genuinely done that, I can assure you, you are the elect of God. You're the chosen of him. You belong to his sheepfold because he initiated that by his grace. It's not of us. And this is what Jesus proclaims in this first string of ands in these verses. He knows his sheep. He knows who they are and he calls them by name. They hear his voice and note they come. Do you see the certainty in these words? This is the work of God's gracious initiative in bringing sinners to his son that they might be saved Through his sacrifice, God's grace intrudes into our sinful bondage to set us free, drawing us out from the world and into the sheepfold of Christ. He made us his sheep. It was his initiative, initiative of grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. We certainly didn't earn it. 
By his grace, he initiated. Second, we consider the effective invitation. And again, I'm using the word effective because it emphasizes the certainty in these words found in verse 27 to 29. We often refer to this as the efficacious call of God, the efficacious call of the gospel. The second doctrine is that the sheep known to Jesus, when he calls, they do follow. The gospel proclamation has been sounded forth, inviting sinners to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. We often refer to the preaching of the gospel as an invitation for sinners to come and partake of the forgiveness that God offers through his son's sacrifice. Now, in this gospel invitation... There is both a general call and a specific call. The general call refers to the external proclamation of the gospel, where as we preach Christ, we are inviting all to come to Christ. It is a general call, and from our perspective, we don't know who those are that God would call to himself. So we proclaim the gospel to all. That is the open invitation. It is the external invitation. Now, I want to bring to light something that um, there it is. The general call of the gospel. I don't know if the folks at home can see this or not, but it is on the third note sheet, and you can follow along. In their book on the doctrines of grace, Philip Ryken and James Montgomery Boyce wrote on the general call or the universal call of the gospel with these words. It is an invitation to all persons to repent of sin, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It is the call that Jesus gave when he cried, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11. Or again, when he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, John chapter 7. That's a description of the general call, the external proclamation of the gospel. But the specific call of the gospel, by contrast, is internal. And it is a proclamation or a work of the Holy Spirit within the person who has been chosen by God for salvation. God has given to these ones his son and they will come. They will hear the voice of the Savior and they will follow. And again, if we... Listen to Riken and Boyce. The specific call not only issues, this is the specific call of the gospel by God himself, not only issues the invitation, but also provides the willingness or the ability to respond. It is a case of God bringing to spiritual life those who without that call would remain spiritually dead forever. That's the specific call of the Spirit. We have previously studied this from the gospel truth that John gave to us in chapter 6 and verse 37. I've used this passage a number of times before, but it again articulates what Jesus is proclaiming here in John 10. John 6 verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come. Do you emphasize the the certainty in those words? All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. And the one who comes to me, Jesus said, I will certainly 
not cast out. Nobody is lost to the Son. Of those that the Father gives to His Son, they will come. What this describes, again, is the effectual call of the gospel. And it identifies why the Pharisees, the religious rulers, heard the clear testimony of Christ, and yet they refused to believe. While the sheep, known to Jesus, my sheep, as he said, heard the same voice, heard the same testimony, and they followed. We must observe, again, the certainty by which his sheep respond to his voice. It does not say that his sheep will hear him and perhaps they will follow. Maybe they will decide not to. Maybe they will decide to follow him. It does not say that. My sheep hear my voice and they do follow. They will come. These sheep who Jesus calls his own and who he knows are the sheep given to him by God the Father. That's what John 6.37 said. The Father gave these ones to his Son, and they will come. Jesus repeats the same truth in 10 and verse 29. The Father gives to his Son those who will and do come. God gives to his Son those who his Son will certainly save. And this is not because God has forced the issue of salvation upon them, as Riken and Boyce had just stated. Rather, with that invitation, with that call, God gives the willingness by His grace. He opens up the heart to see the glory of Christ gifting to that person faith, opening their eyes to the truth of God's Son. And when men see Christ for who He is, they cannot refuse Him. The gift of faith has been granted, and once this takes place, the born-again sinner will not refuse the offer of eternal life. They will respond to the invitation to come, and they will partake of God's saving mercy. Being made alive by Christ, the sinner now sees the gracious salvation for what it really is, and he willingly receives that salvation. This is what the Reformers called the irresistible grace of God, once we see Christ for who he is, we will not turn away. It's irresistible. When the grace of God works, it is amazing, is it not? What a precious gift we have in God's redemptive grace. The sinner who is drawn by God in this way hears the voice of Jesus Christ in a believing way repenting of their sinful rebellion towards God, trusting in the saving work of Christ, they turn, they follow the shepherd. And this marks a turning point for every sheep that belongs to him. They follow his voice. And this brings us to a third doctrine that must be considered, the security of our inheritance. The inheritance that was read to us this morning out of Ephesians 1, the security of, of the inheritance that God promises to all those who are in Christ. In the Lord's declaration, this security belongs to everyone who believes, every one of his sheep. And this is, again, based upon the gracious gift of God, as we read in verse 28, where Jesus says of his sheep, I give them this. I give them eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to describe the the very nature of that gift. 
Before we get much further into that, though, I would like us to pause for a moment and look at 1 Peter, both in chapter 1 and then later in chapter 5, because Peter, the apostle of Christ, describes this gift in the very same language or very similar language, we might say, as Jesus does here in John chapter 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you and who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Note the absolute certainty of the words that Peter is choosing there. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade, reserved in heaven for you, those of you who are protected by the power of God. That is strong, secure language for every believer. The language of this passage parallels what Jesus promises to his sheep in John 10. God is not a master of the non-answer. It couldn't be any more clear and certain. Eternal life is an inheritance that will never perish, will never become corrupted or defiled. It's reserved in heaven for those who are protected by the power of God. Jesus is telling his people that the life he gives to us won't perish and cannot be taken away. More than that... We can't be taken away. Once we're in his care, nobody can remove us from his hand. His father is greater than all. Both he and the father then have this unbreakable hold on the sheep that belong to him. Once we are the sheep of his pasture, we can never be lost to Christ. We can never experience eternal corruption. In reformational language, this has been called the perseverance of the saints meaning the true believer will persevere in following the voice of the shepherd and Savior. More accurately, we persevere because he preserves us. He holds us, and he won't let go. That's devotion. That's determination, protected by the power of God. Is that how you see yourself this morning? The perseverance of the saints does not mean the Christians on their earthly journey will not fall into sin because we most certainly do. Rather, it means that we will not fall away from Christ. We can't because his hand holds us. And if that's not enough, the Father has his hand on us as well. There is certainty here. If it is a faith that has been worked in us by the Spirit of God, He will hold us fast to himself. He will not let us go. This is the promise of God himself. Those who once gave testimony of faith in Christ, but who later deny Christ, only give evidence of an illegitimate faith. You can't lose your salvation. You maybe didn't have it in the first place, but once Christ has his hold on you, we can't be lost to him. 
when we understand the promise of this eternally durable life that Christ gives to us, I think we understand more clearly how even the temporal things of this life cannot disrupt the imperishable quality of life that we have with Christ. In other words, nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we saw that last week, Romans chapter 8. Things in this world may temporarily distract us from faithfulness to Christ. But we will persevere to the end so as to be eternally saved because of the hold, the preserving hold that Christ has on us. We are protected by the power of God. Thank God that we are not protected by our own power, our own strength. You are held by the power of God. Now, there are implications to this promise that go beyond the promise of life in a future heaven reality. That's a sufficient glory in itself. But when Jesus tells us that he has a preserving hold on his sheep, he is saying, I hold you even now. 1 Peter chapter 5, if you will go there for just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 5, and look at verse 10. We learn something of the implications of this promise for the present life. Peter writes, after you have suffered for a little while, chapter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace, there's that gracious work of God again. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, the calling of the sheep into his fold, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, I know there are different words than those four or in different order, depending on your translations. But I want us to give just quick consideration to what the hold of God does for us in the here and now. He has given us life. When the Son gives us life, what does it mean in the here and now? We reflect on the glory that is to come, and that's magnificent. But Peter's describing something that we experience right now because of the hold that Christ has on us, because of the gift of life. Even in the things of this world, the hardships, the turmoils, the temptations, we fail in sin areas sometimes. The world may persecute us. The world may reject us. Even in the hardships and the turmoil of life, even in these things, we are to be reminded that Jesus Christ has a fixed hold on us. There's a double security, the Father holding us as well. And this means that we can never be lost to Christ and that he will continue his work of grace upon us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Peter gives us four areas. First, we will continue to be perfected, bringing us to spiritual wholeness. We use the word sanctification at times. Romans 8 teaches us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. As long as Jesus Christ is holding us, we're going to continue to be sanctified by him. He will continue to perfect. Second, God's grace will confirm us more and more. To confirm means to make us more resolute, more steadfast, more sure about the spiritual path we are on. Remember his sheep, hear his voice, they follow after him. Given the true sheep follow Christ, this means that we're being made more determined to walk with Christ than we are to be taken off course. We're more determined to be on the path of Christ than we are on the path of the world. To be sure, we all have moments where we become misdirected by our own weaknesses. 
But the preserving grace of God is going to cause us to be more steadfast as we live under his care. Third, to be strengthened by the grace of God as a more proactive sense. We're on the offensive now. And the emphasis here is we're spiritually, we're being made stronger in Christ day by day, sturdier. This not only enables us to stand against the attacks that come against our walk of faith, but it's making us stronger to do the work that Christ has called us to do. We become more fit to disciple others, to serve his kingdom, to care for his church, to proclaim his gospel. And fourth, in order for this kind of growth to continue, we must be further established against the negative setbacks of this life. Being established has a kind of defensive posture to it. Where spiritually we're being shored up to resist the attacks of Satan, the attacks of this life. Whether these attacks are satanic or worldly, or maybe even from our own sinful passions, God's grace establishes those who are firmly held by him. The confidence that we find in the promise of John 10 is that not only is eternity secure for every true believer, but the present life is secure as well. It is good for us to be reminded that with Christ, right now we're living the eternal life. Our world is filled with temporal stuff, meaning things in this life that are going to come and go. Tuesday is going to come and go. Rulers are going to come and go. Nations come and go. Our health is going to come and go. Fortunes, they're going to come and go. But the inheritance that has come to us through the power and promise of Christ Never is going to go away. Never is it going to disappear. Never is it going to become defiled. And we can be never taken out of that promise either. That's the certainty of our eternity as the sheep of Christ. And this brings us to the final truth that I want to talk about this morning. And I'll try to go through this very quickly. It is a negative point again. It is the condemned unity that Jesus Christ proclaimed of himself. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. And the Jews pick up stones to kill him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being made yourself out to be God. Do you realize what they've just admitted? Jesus said, I've done many good works in the name of my Father from God himself. Which one are you stoning me for? Oh, we don't stone you for those good works. The good works that are done from the Father. In other words, we're not recognizing your divine power, your divine nature, your righteousness. The message that you are proclaiming to us from God himself. We're rejecting your miracles, your power, your authority. What we're going to stone you for is because you claim to be God. When he's doing the works of God. They're condemning the very unity that Jesus Christ proclaimed in every aspect of his life. From his miracles to his preaching, to his compassion, to his very character being the nature of God himself. They're choosing to ignore who Jesus Christ clearly identified himself to be. 
And this brings us back to their demands back in verse 24. They wanted to hear Jesus openly declare his identity, not to believe in him, but to kill him in disbelief. They were quite willing to ignore all that Jesus was and did and performed in favor of hearing Jesus declare who he was. Just tell us, you're the Messiah, because we want to kill you. What angered this self-righteous mob is the very substance of our eternal security. What Jesus declared about his unity with the Father was more than a statement than Jesus was acting on God's behalf. You have to go back to what Jesus said in verse 27, 28, and 29 to put together what Jesus says and means in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Jesus isn't just saying, well, I'm acting in accordance with the will of God because we as believers can act in accordance with the will of God. But that doesn't make me the son of God, does it? What Jesus is declaring in verse 30 is that I and the Father are one. I give eternal life just as God alone gives eternal life. I have the power to hold on to the souls of men that belong to me. Only God can do that. What Jesus is describing in this unity is a unity of power and of operation, of ability and practice. Only God can do those things. And because I do those things, Jesus is saying, I am God. The Father and I are one. I'm one in essence, one in nature, one in power, one in authority, one in operation. I can actually do the things that I promise to my people. The context of Jesus being one with the Father is that of power and authority. He gives eternal life. He protects his own. He holds on to them. And while unbelievers reject this unity in the Father and Son, the true sheep of God's pasture, we rejoice in it. It is the union of Father and Son that gives us confidence. And no matter, no matter what happens to us in this life, nothing can separate us from these eternal promises and blessings. Nothing can take away our position with Christ. There's no power that can take us away from the care of our shepherd because no one has the power that God has. We are eternally his. Now, just by way of summary this morning, I want to highlight some of the assurances that this passage gives to us. And as some of us meet for small groups, this is a great topic of discussion. I'm only going to touch on a few of the implications But think about the ways you can expand this. Number one, true sheep are the product of God's grace. Do we not clearly see this from the text? If you belong to Christ, you're a product of God's graciousness. If John 10 has told us anything about the gospel, is that the salvation is the Lord's from start to finish. It's his work of grace. Sinners must respond to this grace by faith to be sure. But we only respond in that way of faith because our hearts have been made willing by his gracious work. We can share Christ then with confidence, knowing that he will save those who he chooses to save. We go out into the world then with confidence, inviting people to come to Christ. I don't know who the elect are, but I know God has his chosen. So this gives us great assurance and confidence in preaching the gospel. It gives us or fills us with great gratitude and thanksgiving 
for the gracious character of God in saving. Second, true sheep are identified by their recognizing the shepherd's voice. We've seen this before in our study. True sheep will be identified by those who recognize the shepherd's voice. When the truth of God's word is correctly proclaimed and correctly applied, even when it's being preached by other Christians like I am doing right now, we recognize the shepherd's voice, right? If you happen to be walking in sin and a brother or sister comes up to you and shares the word of God with you, you at once recognize that's the shepherd's voice and I must follow him. I must go his way. So as believers, we're to always be listening for the shepherd's voice, always following after the shepherd, and it will keep us faithful in our service and faithful in our walk of righteousness. Third, true sheep are learning to live in eternal confidence. If there's one thing John 10 gives us in the verses we've studied, it's confidence, is it not, in our eternity, confidence in our shepherd, Confidence in the eternal, the imperishable, no matter what temporal things may bring to us in this life, we are meant to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal. It's the remedy for fear, for anxiety, for discouragement, depression. Keep your eyes fixed on the eternal. That's where we find our confidence. It's in the Savior that keeps us and holds us. Father in heaven, our hearts have to be filled with much praise and thanksgiving. This morning, just hearing the words of our Savior and Shepherd speak these words of confidence, these words of promise, these words of security. These are also words that expose the absolute graciousness of you as a father that redeems his people, that calls us, that takes the initiative, that finds us in bondage to sin and comes to set us free. Father, we learn so much of grace as we study these doctrines. I pray, Father, that we will become faithful in hearing the voice of our shepherd and going his way, walking his way, being more faithful and zealous in our service for your kingdom, our ministry to the church, our fellowship with other believers, our walk of obedience and righteousness. We recognize this is a work of Christ in our lives, and we give you thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen.